Well, it certainly is good to be back with you, with so many of you. I don't remember seeing the place being quite so full before, so it certainly will be warm. But I'm leaving my jacket on. (laughs) If I'm going to test you, I found being given this task for this evening and next week quite a test to my own thinking. I've thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to clarify a number of areas that I've been thinking about over the years. Because it is arguably the case that the Ten Commandments are more neglected in Britain today than they have been for centuries. And given that's so, it's not unreasonable to probe why this has come about. Obviously, a root cause for departure from the Ten Com- of the Ten Commandments from our national life is the general abandonment of Christian standards in Britain as a whole. And the aversion to biblical religion is compounded by the prevailing disrespect for authority of any sort in our age and generation. Western civilization has abandoned respect for norms and standards. The the strident notes of the rebel are heard at every level of society. We are free to do our own thing. Who are you to tell us otherwise? That is the thinking that prevails not just in Britain, but throughout Western civilization today. And sad though it is, what is even more lamentable is that the same mode of thinking is increasingly dominant within the life of the church. Indeed, I'd be prepared to argue that it arose within the life of the church. The loss of authority in the church's voice in our civilization and communities arose because the church itself neglected the standard of God's word. Others are quick to spot the hypocrisy of urging moral standards upon society when the church itself so largely disbelieves the Bible and fails to recognize its authority as regards belief and as regards practice. We're living in an age when the Christian church is largely ineffective precisely because it's under the judgment of God for having neglected his word. It's as if he's saying to us, you thought you could undermine the veracity and authority of scripture. You thought you could set aside my word and still be effective within society. Well, it's as if God's saying, I'll let you see what happens when you try to do it that way. I'll let you see just how persuasive and compelling you can be on the basis of your own ideas. The fundamental predicament is the age-long problem. Mankind are in rebellion against God. And it is the mark, it is the essence of a rebel that he repudiates the authority of God. That the spirit of rebellion 
antinomianism, lawlessness. It's infiltrated the church to such an extent that in many places it is the dominant thought. And of course it's not a difficult task because in all of us there is that spirit that wants to go our own way. And the impact of the remaining rebellious spirit within us has been compounded. And this is my principal theme this evening. It's been compounded by a lack of certainty within the church about the place and role of God's law. People say the Ten Commandments. Aren't they Old Testament teaching? A relic from a former age. Something that's not really relevant anymore. The Ten Commandments, why? They're they're negative, they're gloomy. Shouldn't New Testament belief, shouldn't New Testament faith be joyful and positive? Where is the role for the Ten Commandments? They say, doesn't the New Testament say to us, we're not under law, but under grace? Surely, they argue, Christian conduct is to be determined by the norms of love, not by innumerable petty restrictions. These are real questions for many people. They reflect real attitudes. But we must bring them to the test of what Scripture says, of what Scripture teaches. And we are challenged ourselves as to not only our thinking on the matter, but our practice also. So in trying to get an overview on questions such as these, I make no apology by beginning by considering the Old Testament situation. I I assume that's why you asked an Old Testament professor along. (laughs) It's also obvious that the Ten Commandments originate in the Old Testament So it's to the Old Testament we have to go to get the basic scriptural orientation on these matters. We're going to the Old Testament, however, as Christians. It's our privilege to read the promises of the Old Testament, the development of them, in the light of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But still it's the case that to come to a full appreciation of what is in the New Testament we have to begin with the foundation that God laid in the Old Testament. We have to begin at the beginning. I was fairly certain we were going to hear Exodus 20 read tonight. Uh, It seemed a very obvious choice. That's where you find the Ten Commandments. To understand the Ten Commandments, we've therefore got to do justice to them in the place, in the locus, where we find them in God's word. They are a particular revelation that God gave. The setting, as we saw, is Mount Sinai. God was instituting his covenant with the Israelites. He had just brought them out of the oppression and the slavery of Egypt and was forging them into a people dedicated to his purposes. But on its own, that will not be enough to locate the Ten Commandments theologically. On its own, it's not just enough to say 
delivered through the instrumentality by the mediation of Moses at Mount Sinai. We need to locate the Mosaic Covenant in terms of the whole sweep of God's dealings with humanity. We have to go back to the fact that since the fall of mankind, there had been alienation, estrangement between God and man. No longer was there the close, continuous fellowship that had been enjoyed in Eden. Mankind had been expelled from the garden. God wasn't silent, but he no longer talked freely or continuously with those he'd created in his image and likeness. God didn't abandon the human race, but for for centuries he revealed himself just to a chosen few here and there. Now that early period of divine dealing with mankind climaxed, came to an end really, in the call of Abraham. Something new was being inaugurated. The way forward in God's dealings with humanity, no longer going to be with people in general, revelation was rather going to be associated with a special people, Abraham and his descendants. And by divine determination, the way of salvation was graciously made known to them. The promise was given. God would be their God and they would be his people. God would provide for them and God would also provide through them. And Abraham, the man of faith, accepted God at his word and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham put his trust in the divine promise. And if you look at Genesis 15, you'll see that the divine promise at that point was particularly focused on the question of seed, of Abraham having descendants. It's not simply a matter of the number of those descendants. It is because right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, seed, the seed of the woman, had become virtually a technical term related to the divine promise of deliverance from sin and evil. The content of the promise grew. The content of the promise was clarified over time. But it was in God's promised deliverance that Abraham's faith rested and that the faith of the church in Old Testament times rested. That's why Abraham's attitude of trust was divinely accepted as putting Abraham in a right relationship with God. That is why Abraham is the father of the faithful in every age. His salvation was not by works, not by anything that he had done. It was by faith in the promised word of the sovereign God who said that he would provide. Furthermore, we have to notice that though the focus of revelation, the focus of salvation, was narrowed down to one man, 
one family line, the universal scope of divine blessing wasn't negated. God narrowed it down so that in the fullness of time it might broaden out. Through your offspring, through your seed, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Some generations after Abraham, in God's providence, the family of covenant blessing are brought down to Egypt. And for 400 years, there's divine silence. Wasn't the case that the promise was in abeyance? The family of Abraham grew in size. They became a nation. But they were a nation oppressed and enslaved until the time came in God's plan for his purpose to move forwards. And again we have to notice that the basis of God's action was grace, not reward. Remember the historical situation. In the days of Moses, the kingdoms of this world were organized into empires, many of which were showing their brilliance. In Egypt and in Mesopotamia, among the Hittites, among the Elamites, there were mighty nations. There were commercial enterprises. Uh, There was art, there was literature, there was splendid architecture. And utter pagan darkness. The nations had lost sight of the one true God. They were dazzled by their own achievements. They were enthralled into the powers of spiritual darkness. And was the situation any different amongst the people of the covenant line? Was the situation any different in those descendants of, amongst those descendants of Abraham held in servitude in Egypt? No, not at all. They too had largely forgotten the God of their fathers and were worshipping idols. The bondage imposed on Israel in Egypt was the penalty God imposed on Abraham's descendants for their own sin. There is repeated testimony in scripture that in Egypt the Israelites became involved in the practices of Egypt, losing sight of the promises given to their forefathers. Joshua 24 verse 14, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, that's the river Euphrates before Abraham left Mesopotamia, and in Egypt. Leviticus 17.7 They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the prostitute. Ezekiel 23.3 They committed prostitution in Egypt. They committed prostitution in their youth. Ezekiel 20 verse 8 But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Perhaps more than anything else, the setting up of the golden calf 
at the foot of Sinai is the clearest indication of the inner heart inclination of the Israelites. Apart from divine intervention, they were no better than any other. And God did not give them the law in Egypt so that they could reform themselves and then be rewarded by being saved. No. The covenant with Abraham still stood. Salvation was as it always had been, by faith, not by works. God saved them out of Egypt and then gave them the law. Outwardly, all those who passed through the Red Sea experienced salvation of the Lord. But inwardly, only those who were the true children of Abraham and who had put their trust in the promised word of the Lord were the recipients of eternal salvation. And so we come to the crux of the matter. If in respect of spiritual fundamentals, in other words, that salvation is by faith, if in respect of spiritual fundamentals the situation is the same at Sinai, as it had been centuries before with Abraham. Why was there a Mosaic covenant at all? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Because the time had arrived in terms of God's eternal counsel to manifest in visible form the eternal kingdom of God in the midst of a hostile world. In a world alienated from God, living in opposition to him, Israel were designated as the special chosen people. They were called to fulfill their collective destiny by maintaining as a holy people the standards of divine truth. And this was so that the promised line of the seed, the promised line of descent, uh, would be preserved until the climax in Jesus Christ. It also meant that Israel were able to function as a testimony to the other nations as to the reality of divine revelation and the reality of divine intervention to save. They were a beacon of light in pagan darkness, proclaiming God's purpose for mankind so that all might know why there was a creation at all and what their creator wanted. But you see, Israel could not do that. They could not function as a beacon of light showing forth what God wanted unless they knew God. It was all very well to say, yes, but they should have been loyal. They should have been showing gratitude. Surely when Israel were brought so miraculously out of the oppression of Egypt, their hearts should have been full of a desire to honor and praise the God who had saved them. Being saved from Egypt would undoubtedly engender feelings of gratitude. And the desire to respond appropriately to the one who'd redeemed them. 
The motivation might very well have been there. And the impulse was right and the impulse was good and proper. But it could not be correctly translated into action without knowledge. Exodus 32 shows us very clearly what happens when thanks displays itself without knowledge. Or displays itself in defiance of knowledge. Moses is on the mountain top with God. And down below there's the golden calf. And Aaron saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is the response, the response of seeking to express gratitude without knowledge. It is a gross caricature, a deformation of the response of obedience and gratitude that was required. And that's why God gave the law. The Israelites were rescued from the spiritual darkness of Egypt as much as from the oppression and the bondage of Egypt. The Lord at Sinai presented them with the standards he required. He was re-educating the family of promise, now a nation with the promise, regarding how he wanted them to live to fulfill their destiny. The divine commandments given at Sinai are part of God's educational syllabus for his people so that they might know what he is like, so that they might live lives of dedicated gratitude to him. I've been here before, so I don't know if I've used this illustration before, but it's an old one that I I like. I think the series of advertisements on television only came to, the, came to an end quite recently. But it had been around for many years. And it's many years ago I remember it. I'm trying to get the details straight in my mind. Where's it advertisements for Cadbury's Dairy Milk? Where some gentleman did feats of daring do to come through a window down a precipice and present to someone the box of Dairy Milk. But suppose she liked black magic. (laughs) For all those feats of bravery, valor, to have ultimate resolution in satisfaction, you need to have knowledge regarding the one you're bringing the gift of gratitude to. And it was the same with the Israelites. They'd been living 400 years in Egypt. They had assimilated Egyptian thought patterns. They had got into the way of looking at the world. The Egyptians did. And God claimed them and said, I'm bringing you out of there and I'm putting you here. And you're my people. Now you've got to know what I want. Otherwise you can't serve me. And they showed they couldn't serve him. With that golden calf. And Aaron, in effect, mocking God. Saying, this is him. Now, if you're of a critical disposition, and I'm not using that term in a a negative way, I mean, just like myself, you, you like to probe and ask searching questions, you might very well at this point want to say to me, well, 
All right, just suppose I accept what you've said about the Israelites at Sinai. You still haven't really answered two important questions. It's all very well saying those Ten Commandments were given by God so that the Israelites might know how they should respond, how they should live before the God who'd saved them. Ten Commandments accept their part of God's instruction regarding the way in which gratitude to him can be adequately structured. But that doesn't show that the Ten Commandments have any part in the lives of those whom God has not saved. It's all very well saying that's where they came into the life of Israel in the Old Testament. How do you show that the Ten Commandments address the world also? And you can also be asking the question, and you can see that I've got an answer because otherwise I wouldn't be raising this. (laughs) You might also be asking the question, I'm not an Israelite, and I'm not at the foot of Mount Sinai. I'm a Christian, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all very well telling me what happened back at Sinai with the Israelites, but surely that dispensation of the law has all been done away with. You've got to show me how these Ten Commandments relate to me, where I am now. Well, I hope those are the questions you're asking, because here's the answers. Let's do it in turn. I suppose to answer them both, I've got to introduce a theological term, the moral law. What's meant by that? Is it right to introduce such a term? Well, consider a text such as Genesis chapter 26, verse 5 where the Lord speaks to Isaac about his father and says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Or again in Exodus chapter 16 verse 28, where the Lord says to Moses regarding Israel, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments? And my laws. Now, both what was said to Isaac about Abraham and what the Lord said to Moses about Israel are said before Sinai. In the one case, a month or so before, in the other case, centuries before. And both of them are speaking about laws and commandments as already existing. The critics, and I'm now using the term in a negative sense, the critics explain this away as confusion in the sources, a lapse on the part of the person who drew all these things together, whereby he didn't see that he was being inconsistent talking about laws and commandments before the laws and commandments had been given at Sinai. But such an explanation will never satisfy someone who believes in the inspiration of Scripture the authenticity of the narrative. Both those texts show that in some way God could speak of his commandments and laws as existing before Mount Sinai. 
Or consider again what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, the various ways in which Paul uses the word law is something I hope to look at with you next week. You are having a bad against me. I'm here next week too. But what he's saying at this point in Romans 2 is that in a very real sense there is a law written in the hearts of the Gentiles, of the nations. The law of God may be used to refer to something other than the prescriptions of Sinai, something earlier, something inborn in the human heart, even in the Gentile heart. And to get the scope of that right, we've to begin our historical resume, not back at the fall in Genesis 3, but back at the point of creation. We must go right back and see what happened in Eden. God created mankind in his image and likeness. He equipped them with a knowledge of what he wanted them to do, how he wanted them to behave. God has never left mankind in a vacuum regarding the revelation of his will. Knowledge of the will of God at creation was impressed on the moral nature of mankind. Perhaps more accurately we could say that the knowledge of the revelation of God's will was concreated along with mankind. They never existed without that knowledge. And that revelation of God's will, given in and with creation, is what we're referring to as the moral law. Even though humanity is now a fallen race, Paul tells us there can still be traced a remaining awareness of those terms, those standards of conduct that God requires. It's an imperfect awareness, but it is still real. More is needed for the direction of the people of God. Where can we ascertain now what it is that constitutes the moral law? At one level, instruction as to what God requires of mankind can be ascertained by reading the narratives of Scripture and drawing inferences. When one looks at Genesis 1, there are many indications of Genesis 1 and 2. There are many indications of what are known as the creation ordinances. We might look at Genesis later on in terms of what God required at the covenant with Noah. There are other specific narratives in the book of Genesis that give us instruction regarding the type of conduct that pleased God and the type of conduct that displeased God. Others say we can work out something of this by using our faculties, uh, by talking in terms of what is natural law, derived by a process of reasoning from what can be ascertained in the moral consciousness of mankind. 
But when God considered the ignorance of the covenant people whom he'd redeemed from Egypt, when he considered the role that he wanted them to play in furthering his purposes of redemption, he didn't leave them to derive the lessons indirectly by considering the narratives of Genesis that Moses provided them with. God was pleased to deal with the situation directly and he informed his people once more of the content of the moral law which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Now there are a great many serious-minded thinking Christians who say at that point, that's where you've gone wrong. That's where I have to part company with you. They'll say the Ten Commandments are not the moral law. And they bring forward quite a number of arguments. Some of them are based on what's said in the New Testament. And I'm going to defer consideration of those till next week. But there's one argument that they bring forward that's initially quite impressive. It says... You have no warrant for dividing up the various requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. You have no warrant for dividing up the law saying there's the moral law and the Ten Commandments. There's the ceremonial law. There's the political law. And then saying the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are in some way exempt from New Testament teaching that the believer is no longer under Moses. They come and they say, if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul never says, you're Moses' offspring, bound by the law of Sinai. And they say it's illegitimate to try to exempt one aspect of the Mosaic law from abrogation by the coming of Christ by importing into the Old Testament distinctions that were never there. Perhaps the the arguments expressed most strongly by saying, if you were an Israelite of Moses' day, you weren't free to say, well, I'll live by the Ten Commandments, but as for that sacrificial, ritual, ceremonial, judicial law, well, that doesn't matter. What God said at Sinai came as a package. What God said at Sinai was an indivisible unity for the Israelite. There were no opt-out clauses. The Mosaic covenant was a unity. The law expressed its demands as a unity. You had to obey it all. Compliance wasn't optional. And so the conclusions reached, you can't split off the Ten Commandments and say they're the moral law. That that is, I think, the strongest argument that's put. Now, I'm not sure I agree with all the assumptions that go into presenting it. I'm not sure I, in fact, I don't agree with the thesis that it's wrong to read from the New Testament back into the Old. I find, for instance, that there's many messianic promises in the Old Testament that can only adequately be understood in the light of what the Holy Spirit says in the New Testament. But leaving that aside, what I want to argue 
is that right from the start, the Israelites knew that there was something distinctive about the Ten Commandments. It is the evident testimony of Scripture that the Decalogue, right from the moment it was uttered at Sinai, had a different status from all the other regulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Oh yes, they all came to Israel and Israel could not pick and choose, but they were aware of the different status of the Ten Commandments. Consider this. The Ten Commandments were delivered in a special way. As we heard it read, they were spoken immediately by the voice of God. All the other regulations of Sinai were communicated privately to Moses on the mountaintop and given through him to the people. But it was with an unparalleled display of infinite majesty and greatness that the Lord accompanied the Ten Commandments when he spoke them. There's also the fact that there are ten, a symbol of completeness. I think I find much of what's written regarding scriptural numerics fanciful. Uh, When somebody tells me I know the meaning of the number 17 in scripture, I get worried. (laughs) But there are some things about scriptural numerics that are undoubtedly true. And one is that the number 10 conveys the idea of a definite whole. Something that is complete, in which nothing is lacking. Something that is to be considered as in some way a unity in itself. It wouldn't have done for there to be nine commandments or eleven. Ten were deliberately chosen by God to mark this group as complete in a certain sense in itself. It was only the ten commandments that were written by the finger of God on two tables of stone on both sides. No room for future additions on tables of stone, a symbol of their being permanent and imperishable. It was the Ten Commandments that were laid up in the ark in the tabernacle. It was the Ten Commandments that were brought and placed under the atonement cover over which God appeared in Shekinah glory. And it's also the case that this difference between the Ten Commandments and the other regulations of the Mosaic Covenant fits in with the prevailing practice in ancient Near Eastern treaties. God was pleased to use an existing literary form to express his truth to the people of Moses' day. And in these political treaties in the ancient world, The great king first of all set out his general terms and policy for dealing with the subject people. And they were then followed by detailed stipulations. If the first section said, you pay me taxes, the second section said, in whatever the ancient measures were, at 50 pence in the pound. Uh, Ancient emperors were pretty greedy. 
In the same way, God used this structure of general requirements followed by detailed stipulations. Matches precisely the Ten Commandments followed by the other aspects of the Mosaic Law. Indeed, there are scholars who argue that the bulk of the book of Deuteronomy is thematically ordered in terms of the basic covenant prescriptions of the Ten Commandments. The Lord began by setting before the covenant community the policy he wished to impose on their life. He set before them the basic value structures and goals that they should aim for. Then he delivered the specific procedures in which that policy could be worked out in their own time, in their own specific culture, in their own specific environment. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments aren't called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. That's why Decalogue, which literally means ten words, is probably a better term. And notice they're not law in our modern sense. No penalties stated. What human tribunal would ever be able to enforce thou shalt not covet? These are covenant stipulations, policy prescriptions, general lines of policy. But they weren't innovations. They were a promulgation of the moral law. God had initially given to mankind an awareness of the fundamental principles that he expects human beings to live by. They can be further distilled down to two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But don't fall into the way of thinking that that's New Testament. Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. The first statement's a citation of Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second of Leviticus 19.18. Love has always been the essential motivation. But it needs the illumination and the information of the Decalogue to channel the expression of that fundamental requirement of love in an appropriate manner. Can I digress? May I digress, sir? Here's a problem that's affected a lot of people. When Adam before the fall, was made aware, grew up, came to consciousness with an awareness of God's moral law. It was given to him as a covenant of works. He'd been created, Adam had been created sinless, but able to be tempted. If he obeyed God for a limited period, and didn't yield to temptation, he would have been rendered incorruptible, fit to be in God's heavenly presence. The created realm wasn't static, it was dynamic. Through obedience, there was a pathway to confirmed life, uninterrupted fellowship with God. Theologians got things blurred when they saw the moral law again presented at Sinai. It was not a return to the original covenant of works. There was no possibility of Israel meriting eternal salvation 
by obedience. Oh, there is a legal works righteousness aspect to the Mosaic Covenant. But it doesn't relate to individual eternal salvation. That was determined by the covenant with Abraham. And that still stood. But in terms of the specific role given to Israel as the people who were going to be witness to the nations and preserve the line of continuity till the seed would come. The Mosaic law code was given so that their life as a nation might typify the life of the age to come in fellowship with God. Israel was not given the law so that by conforming to the law they might save themselves. They were given the law so that by conforming to it they might be a picture of what God requires that they might be continually reminded of the need for the salvation that would come in the sacrifice of our Lord, prefigured by all the rites and rituals of Old Testament worship. The law was not given as a means of winning eternal life. It was the case that God said to them, if a person does my statutes and my rules, And obeys them, he shall live by them. But that was life as a nation in the land, enjoying its provision. Let me get back to my main argument. The Decalogue stood apart from the other enactments of the Mosaic Law. That's very clear on the pages of the Old Testament. Their significantly different status was evident to Moses, was evident to the Israelites. While the Mosaic Covenant as a whole was a unity, there were obvious distinctions within it. And the Ten Commandments represent the fundamental principles of divine direction for human living. They are God's policy documents. They are the moral law. And they correspond to what God had originally said. And what God said wasn't arbitrary. It flowed from the very nature and being of God himself. He, the standard that he required of his people was a reflection of himself. He had made mankind in his image and likeness. They were there as God's representatives, as God's subordinate rulers over the created realm. They were to pattern themselves after what God was himself and after what God had told them to do. And so we urge the relevance of the Ten Commandments in our modern society on the basis of their being the moral law. It's not so much because God gave them to Israel and Mount Sinai. It's because they encapsulate What God has required of mankind from creation, they encapsulate something that's not arbitrary. It is a reflection of God himself. And because of that, they will never go away. Mankind may have rebelled, but that in no way diminishes the standard that God requires. (coughs) And that gives us an angle on how to approach the individual who comes to us and says... You're arguing 
that these Ten Commandments are relevant to me or to society as a whole. But we don't share your Christian commitment. How can they be relevant to me? It's wrong-headed thinking on your part to try to impose these commandments on me. I don't share your faith commitment. But we're not being inconsistent in our thinking. Because the moral law existed prior to the fall, prior to faith. We're not to keep silent about our Christian commitment being the basis on which we urge the adoption of these standards. It should be the case that we advocate policies that reflect what God requires. But it's still possible to argue for adherence to the moral law on the basis that its requirements make sense. The moral law expresses the maker's instructions for mankind, for an individual, for a society. And we ignore them at our peril. It's possible to construct rational arguments for adherence to these standards in terms of the common good, in terms of the well-being of individuals, in terms of the welfare of society. may not be the highest theological grounds, but it's certainly consonant with Scripture. In the realm of common grace, we are appealing to the remnants of moral consciousness within mankind regarding the moral standards of God. And just because they come from God, we know that they are still relevant. Doesn't matter what scientific advances have been made. Doesn't matter how society is ordered in a different way from the way it was in the time of Abraham or in the time of Moses or whenever. Human nature is still the same. Our relationship with God is still the same. What God requires of us has not changed. The standards of the maker's instructions may be confidently urged in the public forum on the grounds of their reasonableness and suitability. Of course, conforming to the moral law isn't salvation. Observance of the law is not a possibility for fallen mankind to achieve salvation. Those who intervene in public debate on the basis of the moral law are not as such presenting the gospel. But it's still the case that lessening the offence that human sin and rebellion causes God is a truly Christian service. And lessening the misery and the despair caused by individuals and societies to themselves when they act in reckless defiance of God's law is still a gospel goal. And awareness of both these things may, under God's blessing, contribute to even greater good. There are starry-eyed reformers who think that by reason of the force of their arguments and the obvious excellence of the goals and policies that they've got, that they'll transform society. But sooner or later, generally sooner, they come up against the hard fact of human fallenness, of spiritual corruption within the human heart. But those whose policy prescriptions are informed by a recognition of the moral law 
are in a position to avoid many pitfalls because they will not assume that people will necessarily endorse what's good. They will not assume that people won't try to turn what is presented to their own selfish advantage. And of course, they're also in the position, going beyond the letter of their policies in the civil realm, to pointing to the only real and lasting solution to human fallenness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is possible to work hard to change external conditions. And it's right to do so. But that's always only dealing with the symptoms of the malaise rather than the fundamental illness which is deep within the psyche of humanity. But there's one other strand of thought I just want to take up before I conclude. And that was the other problem. Remember I posed the two problems. There were the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. How can they be relevant to the people God hasn't saved? And the answer I would give is because they are a representation. They are God's repromulgation of the moral law. What God has required of his created, uh, those created in his image right from the beginning. But there's the other problem. The problem of the Christian who says, doesn't Paul say, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient in in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The law is for the lawless. One mustn't assume that there's only one purpose for God's law. That there's only one way in which it may legitimately be used. Theologies traditionally distinguished three uses of the law. There's the civil use of the law, which aims to restrain sin and promote good order. Serves the purposes of common grace, so that there is an environment in which the growth of the church may move forward and in which God may bring to consummation his saving purposes. The political or civil use of the law aims at restraining mankind's rebellion in life in general. There's the pedagogic use of the law which brings individuals under conviction of sin convinces them of their inability to meet the standards that God has expressed in his moral law in the Decalogue. And when that happens, it's not salvation, but it may be preparatory to it, because you don't see the need of a saviour until you see what it is you have to be saved from. And then there is the third use of the law, the didactic, the normative use of the law which functions in the life of the believer. In Protestantism in general, there have been various emphases on that. Lutherans very much stress the second use of the law, bringing the knowledge of sin. Reformed thinkers, while they don't deny the second use of the law, also emphasize the third use as a specific God-given direction 
on how to live a life of gratitude and thanks to God. And it's then in terms of that third use of the law that the moral law impinges on my life as a believer. I think it's confusing to equate precisely the moral law and the Decalogue. We often use the Ten Commandments as theological shorthand for the moral law, and often that's fine. But the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are a specific edition of the moral law. In saying that, I'm not supposing that the terms of the law are subject to change. The requirements of the moral law remain the same because God remains the same and his will remains the same. But the way in which the law is expressed may vary. If God were giving the Ten Commandments today, I'm sure he wouldn't say, do not covet your neighbor's donkey. It's not a problem that we have today, but it was a problem back in Moses' day. But the basic principle of do not covet would still be expressed. The Decalogue as given at Sinai was an edition of the moral law, conditioned by the then existing situation of the Israelites, and by the then prevailing stage in the development of God's saving purpose. The moral law predates Sinai, and the moral law postdates Moses. And we don't receive the moral law from the hand of Moses, but from the hand of Christ. And more importantly, we receive it from the example of Christ. For truly, he said, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord went on not to debunk the law, but to emphasize exhaustively that he endorsed it. But it wasn't just his teaching. He lived it. Those who disparage the moral law must remember that Christ lived perfectly in accordance with it. Those who would follow him must recognize and adopt the standards he lived by. It's one of the privileges of living in the Christian age to have the moral law not as a written code confronting us, but as a lived example in the life of one who comes alongside us and says, be like me. So when we are considering, and I'm going to consider this much more next time we meet, all being well, when we're considering where the, where the Ten Commandments relate to me as a Christian, yes, we're to see them as given by God to his people. To his people in Old Testament times, in relation to the Mosaic Covenant, and as part of it. But God's basic principles of dealing with mankind have always been the same. We call that the moral law. The moral law comes to us from God the Creator. There is no human being who, has, who is exempt from its requirements. The moral law is endorsed by Jesus Christ. 
He uses the Ten Commandments as a useful presentation of that moral law. And he lives it out, placing it before us as the standard that we should live out. And for the same reasons as God presented it to the Israelites of old. If we love him, our love must be structured and informed by the knowledge of what pleases him, by the knowledge of what he is like himself. And in that way, the laws, the moral law still plays an essential role in the life and well-being of the individual and of the church community. I'll leave it there this evening, sir. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Mackay. And uh, you are willing to engage in dialogue? What you said at the beginning was <laughs> to have questions asked. Right. <laughs> okay. That doesn't imply I give answers. Okay. But I'll listen to the questions. Well, there you are. Let, can we just have a, a very short break of no more than a minute just for you to gather your thoughts and talk relevantly and appropriately to the person next to you with a view to framing some questions. You try to refrain from asking questions which will be answered next week, if you can. That's quite a test, actually. Please come next week, of course. Uh, and it may be difficult to avoid an overlap, but please feel free to ask questions of Professor Mackay. We've got this monster. Um, that, not Mr. <laughs> I don't mean John Errington. I mean he's holding a monster. It's this new technology, and you will have to speak your question, if you have one, into it so that we can record it for posterity. Other questions? You'll have to... The first question always is behind a pillar and as far away as possible. But it's worth waiting for, I'm sure. I hope so. Is it close enough? Yes, hello. Uh, my question is, um, I think you made a very convincing point of arguing for the existence of a moral law, but there's something that makes me hesitant in accepting that the Ten Commandments are a moral law, because surely there's lots of moral laws like incest and, and, and sodomy and, uh, and polygamy and, and, and assault and things, which aren't actually contained in the Ten Commandments. And when you mentioned uh, how the Ten Commandments are set aside from other laws, do you therefore think, like, for example, the laws about incest are less moral law than the Ten Commandments from which they're set aside? Have you got the question? Yes, I have the question. Have you got the answer? That's got the answer? <laughs> the other areas that you mention are equally moral law, but in a very real sense, they are derivative from the basic principles. This can be seen even in the Old Testament itself. Uh, when God says, do not commit adultery, that is uh, an encapsulation, a brief way of setting out the basic bond in human sexual relations and 
by, <clears throat> to use the old phrase, good and necessary inference therefrom, it covers other aberrations. Many of these are explicitly spelled out for Israel. God did not just leave the people with the Ten Commandments. He gave very explicit instructions uh, regarding uh, the way in which they were to behave in certain instances. But even when you take the whole of the Mosaic Law, you haven't covered all the possibilities. The basic principles are still to be worked out in different areas. Uh, it's as it, society changes. There are um, new crimes all the time. Hacking into the CIA's computers is not covered by the Ten Commandments directly, but it's a good and necessary inference from do not steal. And so the basic principles are there. Uh, it's a policy statement rather than detailed prescription. And therefore, on that basis, uh, one can work out other things that are moral, morally wrong as consequences. Does that cover Really, surely adultery is kind of a quite specific thing, though, and is quite separate from other things, such as incest. No, it, adultery is a breach of the relationship that God has set up uh, for the way in which man and woman relate. It is the norm. And all the other aberrations are departures from that norm. That is the only God-legitimated mode of sexual relationship and therefore all others are wrong it's you can get a good and necessary inference that is both positive and negative the positive ones are sort of subsidiary categories i mentioned do not steal and really that's in the same sort of area as do not break into the cia's computers uh, but equally as christ so very much in the sermon on the mount emphasized uh, there's the positive aspect of do not steal. Uh, well, that's not one that works out quite so well in terms of the seven and the mount. Um, Paul, is it in Ephesians? Therefore let him that stole steal no more, but rather. And there is therefore the positive implication. So that the, you can move from the basic command in a variety of ways that... Uh, are comprehensive. It's very difficult to get something. I haven't got an instance of something that uh, that seems morally reprehensible and isn't covered by one or perhaps a combination of the Ten Commandments. Thank you. There's a question here, just in front of you, John. In Matthew chapter 5... Jesus said, you have heard it said, I assume he was talking about the law, but I say to you, is he explaining, expanding, or saying, well, it's something different? Yes, that's a fair question, but you've really got to take it in relation to the whole of Matthew 5, where Jesus has begun his teaching in the passage I quoted uh, which says uh, that 
One should not relax even one of the least of these commandments. So he is obviously not setting aside the moral law. He is emphasizing the inwardness of it. And when he says, you have heard that it was said either by or to those of old, uh, he's talking about the perception of the law that was current in his own day. And he's emphasizing very much that it's not just the outward action that is brought under God's scrutiny. It is the inward motivation. It's that the, the basic, well, it just catches my eye here, you shall not murder. And he shows just how extensive the implications of that are in terms of feelings of anger, in terms of the way in which one speaks to one's brother. So it's, again, good and necessary implication. And I think one would have to say it is only Christ who could have said that. It would never have occurred to us uh, that it was that the you shall not murder, you shall not kill had as sweeping implications. But once we've seen the example, um, it, it's obvious this is the way in which it's to be interpreted. There are lots of John in the room. Um, yes, um, I, I take it uh, that you said that there was a moral law before the Decalogue was given. Uh, presumably that was in the conscience of the people who were before that time. Now, uh, how was that related uh, the implications of it related practically, because I'm thinking of uh, someone like Cain. How did he know that the sacrifice that he made was not acceptable to God uh, if he hadn't been spoken to directly? I would argue that the God's basic moral requirements were created within man it was part of what was involved in God making man in his image and likeness otherwise I can't understand what Paul is saying in Romans when he talks about the Gentiles showing the work of the law written in their hearts Cain's sacrifice can I start a wee bit further back we have to remember that Genesis was written by Moses as part of his educational campaign for the Israelites. In just the same way as I was emphasizing in my lecture that God saw the Israelites in spiritual darkness as well as in bondage in Egypt and therefore provided them with a re-enunciation of the moral law so that they might know what he should do. Moses in those 40 years in the wilderness, wrote up Genesis as a means of educating the Israelites. The Israelites, after Sinai, who already knew about the sacrificial law that God had instituted there. And therefore, there are many things that Moses glosses over in Genesis because it was not relevant to the Israelites for whom he was writing the book. And that explains quite a number of the silences 
we would have expected a lot more to be said about the first sacrifice. We would have expected that God said something. I don't personally think that sacrifice was part of what was created with man because there was no need for sacrifice before the fall. I, I view that what was the, the, the inner awareness that was given to man was in terms of what was involved in, in the image and likeness of God. We are not told how Cain and Abel knew to sacrifice. We're not directly told how they were aware of what was required in it. But I think that it's fairly evident, if you approach matters the way I do, uh, that there has to be divine revelation there. Sacrifice, although it's prevalent throughout the religions of mankind, doesn't seem to me to be part of man's inner moral awareness. This often looks quite sacramentalist. <laughs> I can assure you, he's not an angler, are you? <laughs> Distinctly not. Uh, I was going to ask if uh, the professor would um, comment briefly on the, um, the catechism and whether the neglect of teaching the catechism to young children might be a practical... Um, or whether, well, if, if you could just comment briefly on that and uh, whether that would remedy some of the terrible situation that we've got into and how this decline has come about. Do we all hear that? Yes. Good. It's part of a bigger problem. Uh, I'm not quite sure where you envisage this teaching of the catechism as taking place. If you're thinking of it in terms of the family circle, if you're thinking of it in terms of the life of the church, then obviously there is a role, there is a definite decided role for educating uh, children uh, in the knowledge of God and of his word. And a modern catechism, I'm afraid I <clears throat> find some of the language in this 16th century is, uh, has not aged all that well. But uh, there are many modern rewrites that are very acceptable. And uh, I think that that is... Address, will address one of them. What I find breathtaking so often is the tremendous ignorance that exists amongst people who've attended church for years. We, we've, we've, there's a general memory work has gone out in schools. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure of the last few years, but um, <clears throat> don't qualify. Just, 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 just it, it, it is no longer something that's. In favour, there is no more precious heritage that can be given to a child than to have a knowledge of scripture and scriptural truth from an early age. Even sometimes when they don't understand it fully, it will mature with them and it will be there with them and it will never leave them and God can bless it tremendously. But there's another side, I don't know if this was in your mind or not, uh, coming from Scotland, one's aware that catechism was once very much a staple of Scottish educational system, as well as a home environment. And that, of course, raises all sorts of problems in our modern multi-faith society. Uh, I personally believe that there should be explicit 
arrangements made for religious education, but I don't think you would have to be one has to be very careful because there is liberty of conscience, and I would defend that very strongly because if one does not, you're then going to get into a situation in certain places where what is being taught is what one would not wish to be taught at all. So that the locus of catechetical Christian education has got to, in a public school situation, has got to be approached with considerable awareness of all the potential aspects of it.